Democracy in its literal sense means rule by the people. There's much more democracy in a free market context where people can exercise their own decisions and base their decisions upon their own value structures than there is in this majoritarian system. The general rule within free cities is live and let live. You can do what you want as long as you're not harming other people. We want to have governments that are providing more value to their citizens than they are taking away. The ultimate thing should be that people are free to move to whichever kind of entity treats them best and provides them with the best service. Welcome to the Staying Free podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Peter Young. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, then you might remember that in my conversation last year with Daniel Prince, Daniel mentioned the Free Cities Foundation. And I did have at the time a couple of people send me messages wanting to learn more about it and perhaps have a conversation about that. So I've been trying to find the right time to have a full long form conversation with someone from the Free Cities Foundation. So I'm glad to have had the opportunity to have that conversation now and learn more about the Free Cities Foundation with the managing director himself. So I hope you guys enjoy this one. I definitely learned a few things myself. And if you're really interested in what the Free Cities Foundation is doing, make sure you hang around till the end because there is a promo code there for Staying Free Pod listeners for their upcoming event. As always, if you enjoy the episode, please do give it a like and a share on social media. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, make sure you give it a five-star rating in whichever podcast app you're using. If you're new here, then welcome. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast for future episodes. And just a quick reminder, there is a Telegram group now for the podcast, which you can find at t.me slash pod. I post all the episodes in there. So if you want to give feedback and have some discussion about the episodes, then that's definitely the place to do it. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, there are a few ways to do that. I won't go through them now, but the links to those are in the description. All tips, donations, boosts, and subscriptions are hugely appreciated. And that's the best way that you can help me to continue giving you this content. But if you decide not to donate this time, please give the episode a share. I'm really trying to grow this podcast, but despite having thousands more followers and Twitter blue, I seem to be getting just about the same amount of engagement. So anything you can do to try and boost that would be hugely appreciated. All right, on to the episode. So Peter, welcome to the podcast. I, uh, I feel like this conversation has, has been coming quite a long time. Um, you know, I think we first got connected uh, several months ago and we've kind of, um, you know, had it in the making. And as I was saying to you before, before this conversation, I was talking to Daniel Prince the other day and he was saying, hey, you really should get Peter Young on your podcast uh, to talk about free cities. And I said to him, well, he's my next guest. So uh, I kind of feel like this, is, uh, this has been waiting to happen. So um, yeah, welcome to the podcast. Do you want to just give my listeners a little bit of a background firstly firstly just as to as to yourself and then we'll go into into the foundation and everything you're doing sure yeah well thanks for having me on johnny daniel prince is certainly a great uh, connector in the bitcoin and freedom space so um it's good that he reached out to you as well um so in terms of me i am the managing director of the free cities foundation and that's a not-for-profit organization that focuses on supporting self-governing territories that uphold individual rights and freedoms. I got into this work because I was originally working in China in a more traditional government sector role, and I got exposed to thinking around how societies are governed, how uh, economics should inform our thinking on how we make policy decisions during my time there. And from around 2017, I started getting exposed to more libertarian ideas, particularly the Austrian School of Economics. And I found that the ideas of the Free Cities Foundation, which focuses on devolving power and providing power in a way that's much more 
aligned to market forces was in line with what I uh, believed and what I what aligned to the economic ideas I've been studying. So in 2021, I made a decision to start a role at the Free Cities Foundation, and I've been with them ever since. Okay, nice. Yeah, and um, in terms of the, found, the, the the foundation itself, I don't know. Were you one of the founding kind of members of the organization, or did you kind of come into it like after some time? I came into it a bit later. So the founder of our organization is Titus Gable. He founded a predecessor to what's now the Free Cities Foundation in 2017. And I joined because I got to know one of the previous board members and he invited me to start off producing some content for the organization and then uh, taking on the MD role a bit later. Okay, cool. So yeah, I guess this is a, a good point then to, to just give an actual primer as to what the, what the key goals of the, of the foundation are, what the foundation is actually trying to achieve. So we see a world in the year 2023 where we're actually quite limited in the number of governance models that are available to the world's population. There are around 200 different countries, which seems like a large number, but most of these countries operate using the same software. They have a government which raises revenue through taxes. Large sectors of the economy are managed through central planning. So most countries have um, state-provided healthcare, state-provided um, t- uh, education. Um, there's a kind of mixed economy model which seems to be common to most states around the world. And we think that that market, which we call the market of living together, the market for jurisdictions and places that people can live, work and have fun is quite limited due to a number of historical factors, which mean that countries have converged on the same governance model. So what we want to do as a foundation is shake that up and provide opportunities for there to be more innovation. And we do that by working with small territories that have some degree of autonomy and are looking to use it to advance the governance model that greatly supports human freedom. Okay, so you're essentially taking territories of existing states, as of existing nation states, and kind of t- essentially converting a lot of the public sector uh, aspects of, of the economy into a private economy so that it's kind of self-autonomous. Is that right? So not quite. The thing that's different about our model is that we don't work with existing inhabited areas of land because one of the things that's really important to us is that our systems are fully voluntary. We are not seeking to go into an inhabited area and impose a system on an existing population. That's not what we're about. But what we do instead is look at uninhabited, generally greenfield sites around the world where there are governments that are looking for ideas Uh, looking for innovative ideas to promote growth, to create jobs, to improve their governance system. And we work with those territories to adopt a more freedom-focused governance model where the focus is primarily on individual rights, protecting property rights, and creating a functioning market system rather than bureaucratically controlling the central levers of the economy. Okay, yeah. I mean, I would say that most governments in the world, they, they don't, they're not philosophically aligned with these kind of ideas that we're talking about, right? I mean, there's very few, I mean, 
I'm not sure I could name any. I mean, I guess in the Bitcoin community, some people might say that El Salvador is the only country that's really going in that direction of kind of actually recognizing, or, or I guess moving in a libertarian direction, whereas like most governments in the world are moving in the opposite direction. So what kind of governments have you actually found a supportive of these kind of ideas and these kind of projects? So this is a bit of a tricky thing to talk about because this movement is in quite an early stage and the... There's a lot of political sensitivity around trying to work with territory and change the existing governance structure because we live in a, we live in a world where there are lots of political cycles and elections. And when a political party is running for office, generally, if they're proposing something big and bold, like creating an autonomous jurisdiction, the opposition party will create a reason to portray this in a negative way so that they have some ammunition for fighting uh, in a political battle. And so for this reason, we have to be quite cautious about what we say in public around the governments we, we work with. But I can say that there have been existing successes and there are existing projects. The two most notable are in Honduras and they're called Prospera and Ciudad Morazan. These are existing autonomous special economic zones that were established due to a 2013 law. And that was passed with, you know, consultation with the international community, international thought leaders that were working in the free cities, uh, charter city space. And they were successful in creating these zones. Right now, we are having conversations with other governments. And the regions in which those conversations are going best are Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, but generally, we, we we prefer to sort of not be too specific at this stage. I hope that when we come back and we do another interview in a few years, I can give you a few more specific examples. But generally, it's those countries that are in the developing world that are maybe less in the mindset that what we've got right now is the optimal system. I feel like in Western countries, that's often often the case. They're looking for bold ideas. They're looking for examples of territories like Hong Kong and Singapore that have jumped ahead and leapfrogged other countries. And they're saying, how have they done that? Are there things we can learn from that that are a bit less conventional in terms of how we think about politics? Okay. And yeah, I've got a few questions. I mean, first of all, I think that it doesn't surprise me at all that Latin America and Africa are the places, you know, which are kind of, I guess, most um, willing to have these kind of discussions and maybe try out these kind of projects. I definitely think that Africa and um, Latin America are going to be the the key areas for freedom in the world. I'm like really, really bullish on those areas. So that's uh, it's cool to have that confirmed. Um, so in terms of the, the existing projects, I know you said you might not be able to, to say too much about them. But I guess the ones which are a bit more pub public um, and you don't necessarily have to talk about them specifically, but maybe just like your ideas of how these things would run. Like what would, what would the society look like? Let's say you're living in one of these, uh, one of these zones, like how would, what, what would be the real key notable differences between how you would live in those areas versus living in a traditional kind of area with, you know, local government and regional government, et cetera? Yeah, that's a great question. The way it would differ is that you'd be much more in control of the services that you provided. So within these zones, there is not a state provided uh, like education system or healthcare system, but equally at the same time, there is a access to world-class like regulatory and court systems, but 
the governing entity isn't really closely monitoring all of your activity and uh, trying to trying to regulate your activity because they think that they know better than you about how to serve your customers and provide a service. So the main differences would be that you would have a lot less uh, rules imposed on you. The general rule within free cities is live and let live. So it, you can do what you want as long as you're not harming other people. Now that harm can take lots of different forms. It doesn't mean you can do what whatever you like. You can't pollute uh, the air around someone else's house or you can't pollute a river. You can't make noise at night if that's going to disturb other people in your community. Um, but as long as you're not doing that and you're living in a way that's harmonious, we try to not regulate the activity as much as possible because we believe that entrepreneurialism is a creative process that allows people to work out how best to serve society. You can't run businesses through a centralized rule book based on past experience. You need to be able to break outside of that mold. So if you're a business that's looking to move to a free city, you'd find that there was this really favorable environment, which was light touch, but allowed you to um, work productively with the rest of your community. Okay. So with these areas, you said that, you know, they're, they're not areas that already have, you know, an existing infrastructure. I mean, you're essentially kind of building these cities from scratch, right? So how does that, you know, I mean, we see a lot of the, these kind of, I guess, more like hippie types who are out there who are, you know, trying to start these kind of off-grid communities and things like that. And, you know, quite often they don't really, they don't end up kind of succeeding, right? Like it's a bunch of kind of ragtag, you know, tinfoil hat wearing kind of people who, you know, I, I love them dearly, but quite often they, they're not organized. They're not capable of necessarily running these things. So do, how does the Free Cities Foundation and the kind of projects that you're doing, how does it kind of get out of this this trap that I see with a lot of these attempted communities where it doesn't really kind of end up materializing? So a big difference between the communities that we tend to work with and what we would call intentional communities, which are groups of people that come together on the territory of an existing state and decide we're going to live with a particular focus that other people don't have. So it might be a community comes together and says that we are going to be a community that eats only vegan food, or we're a community that subscribes to this particular religion, or we're a community that is super eco-friendly. All of that stuff is, is well and good. And people are free to, free to try that and live in that way. And many people do happily uh, live in that manner. But the reason that these sorts of projects often don't scale is I would argue because they don't have any special legal autonomy. So they're not ultimately, if anyone goes there and wants to invest in the, the city or the community, they have to abide by all of the rules of the state plus whatever additional rules there are within the community. It's not the case that the local community rules can simply displace the requirement for compliance with the host state's regulations. So the thing that differs in our communities is that they actually have a special legal status or are aspiring to have that status. So I mentioned Prosper and Ciudad Morazan. Those are two examples where there's a different, entirely different legal system based on common law rather than civil law. There's an independent regulatory system. 
And then there are other places that we include in our directory, like the Dubai International Financial Center, which is also the case. Again, a, a common law system within a civil law country. Um, so we would tend to work with either those sorts of territories or territories that are currently at the intentional community stage, but are aspiring to have that special legal status. And we think it's that legal status that gives the projects longevity. So with these, uh, the projects that you mentioned, the ones in, in Honduras, how many people are, are actually living there? So in the, if we take Ciudad Morazan, which is an inland development uh, near to San Pedro Sula, uh, which is one of the, which is the biggest city in Honduras, there are about 60 to 70 people living on site at the moment in, uh, there's currently 62 houses and half of those houses are occupied. And then in Prospera, we're talking about 100 to 150 people that are on the site on a day-to-day basis working there. They don't actually have people that live on the site at the moment, but they're currently constructing some some residences. There's a 12-story apartment block called the Juna Residences Block, which is being built in Prospera, and that will house something like 80 apartment blocks, so uh, apartment units. So there are plans to inhabit Prospera and have that as a full holistic living and working community pretty soon. Uh, in Ciudad Morazan, they've already got that. But yeah, at this stage, we're talking we're talking dozens of people, you know, a hundred or so people in each development on a day to day basis. Okay, so let's say that I moved into one of these these places tomorrow. I wouldn't pay basically all all taxes. They're finished, right? Like there's no there's no such thing as taxes in these places. Everything is completely privately owned, right? Or, or are there some kind of is there some kind of governance which you have to kind of opt in for when you move to them? Like, like, yeah, I guess, I guess how, how private are we talking here? Yeah. So there's a difference between what we've been able to achieve in reality and what we would advocate as the ultimate goal for a development. And okay. we do very much advocate a fully private governance model. We think that would work really well if it's allowed to work. And for people that want to learn more about that, the book to read is our founder's book, Free Private Cities, Making Governments Compete for You. And that's about the specifics of a purely private governance model. And within that, you would have an operating company which has an individual citizen's contract with every citizen. And the terms of that contract determine the conduct within the development. And any disputes between the operator and the citizen, they are arbitrated by an independent third-party court. Uh, in the same way that when you have international business disputes, there are often respected international courts that deal with deal with them and do that very satisfactorily. So that would be the, the purely private uh, model that we we do advocate, and we are always trying to propose that to, to governments. But within the existing system, we're we're quite far towards that, but not totally private. So to take the developments that exist, each of them has a private governing entity. But the way they raise revenue is partially through a fee. So if you want to become an e-resident of Prospera, for example, there's an annual fee. Uh, if you're a Honduran, that's $280 a year. If you're a foreigner, it's $1,200 per year. And that provides some funding for the basic operations of Prospera. And then on top of that, there are a few taxes, but those taxes are kept very low. 
So the taxes that are in operation are uh, land tax, and then there's a 10% income tax in Prospera and a 5% income ta- tax in Ciudad Morazan. But generally, the taxes are kept very light. And the regulations that you have, um, there's something quite innovative there in that there is not a set of Prospera regulations or a set of Ciudad Morazan regulations. When you're part of those communities, you can decide when you draft your contracts what body of regulation you're going to be bound by. You could decide that you're going to be bound by a German regulation or a Swiss regulation or an American regulation, or that all of the interactions in your business are simply going to be based on common law standards. So you've got a variety of different options available to you if you move to, if you move to those zones and want to establish um, them, but it's not quite that fully free private city model that you meant, mentioned in your question. Okay, right. I've got a, a bunch of questions based on what you ju- just said there, so I'll, I'll try to keep it concise. First of all, you just mentioned um, the the common law standards. Are those common law standards? Are they are they like a universal um, thing? I got the impression with with common law, it was kind of like some foundational pillar that a lot of legal systems have been based on. But is there actually like a thing such as common law which is recognised universally across territories? Um, there. There isn't. So it's generally drawn from existing common law countries like UK common law, US common law, or some other members of the um, Commonwealth. So you would draw on best practices from those. And when you're, when you're looking to decide how your contracts would be arbitrated, you would draw on existing uh, legal practices in order to, to determine which laws were applicable. Okay, cool. That that's nice. It's it's almost like you could uh, you could almost see this kind of like you can fork a common law. Maybe each territory could say, okay, well, we're going to start with this as our foundation. We're going to start with the British common law sy- system, but then maybe we don't agree with this, this, and this. So we're going to kind of like fork that, you know, and and come up with our our version of it, which you know we still share a lot of the the common law with other places, and you know you can operate and with other people and maintain those relationships on a common footing, but maybe you've got a few things that are different, which people might want to opt into in your territory. So yeah, I, I like that idea. Yeah. When it comes to the, um, the e-residency that you mentioned, like you can get an e-residency already in these places. Does that mean that you can actually go there and get a, go and live there? So that's another area where it's not quite, you're not living on a fully sovereign uh, area of land. The existing zones aren't, don't have their own migration controls. So if you want to go to Prospera, you still have to apply for a Honduran visa if a visa is required. And you're still subject yeah. to the standard checks that there would be when you enter the country of Honduras. We hope that ultimately that won't be necessary and that we can ultimately have very free independent territories. Um, so think about something similar to the relationship between Hong Kong and China. Where if you go to Hong Kong, you don't have to pass through Chinese customs. You don't have a have to apply for a Chinese visa. You can simply uh, do all of those processes in Hong Kong, and Hong Kong has its own separate policies. You know, if I go to Hong Kong as a British citizen, I can stay there for up to ninety days uh, without a visa. If I want to go to mainland China, that's a much more laborious process. You're generally limited to one month. You have to pay in the UK, apply in the UK. So. What we're hoping is that eventually those processes will be separated in the same way, even though a free private city um, would still be nominally under the uh, control of the host nation. We would hope that that 
interaction was pretty limited to stuff like national defense and maybe some uh, some kind of legal relationship. But at the moment, you would have to do all of these migration processes via the, the Honduran government themselves. Okay, so those taxes that you mentioned, the you know pretty low taxes, but there were some taxes to pay. That would be to the national government. That's not that's not being paid to any kind of local governing body within the within that autonomous zone. It's being paid to the the national government essentially. Oh, so in terms of taxes, no, that is paid locally. That's paid to Prospera. Oh, that's or all of it. All of it. Uh, it is, and the way in which the government, the local government of Honduras, or the government of Honduras, gains. A financial benefit from that is that there is a profit sharing deal. So if the entity makes profits, a portion of those profits then go back to the Honduran government. And that kind of win-win situation is part of the reason why Honduras thought that this would be a, a good idea. Um, other reasons being it gets foreign capital into the country. It creates jobs. It creates high value jobs. It stops people leaving Honduras for other countries, um, which they're currently doing in quite large numbers. So yeah, the, the taxes are levied locally and largely spent locally with a proportion of the profits going to the Honduran state to cover things like national defense. Nice. I like that. You know, it's, it kind of reminds me of that, um, that quote, which I'll probably butcher now because I can never quote stuff, uh, precisely, but something like, you know, don't, something like if you like show me the incentives and I'll show you the results or something like that. You know, and this almost mm. sounds like the incentives have been aligned really nicely. Like, you know, it's, it's in the government's interest. It's in the national government's interest for these autonomous regions to succeed. So, you know, even though you could say, well, what's in it for them? Well, if there's a profit profit sharing incentive in it for them, then it can, they can try it out. It's almost like a Petri dish of, you know, lots of different autonomous zones that can kind of compete with each other, you know, in a peaceful way, obviously. And then, you know, the national government can actually see what works and can can take profit from that, which I think is great. Um, okay. So this actually reminds me a little bit of something I've heard Doug, Doug Casey talk about. I know that he, uh, I don't know, he might be in Honduras actually. Do you know, do you know about that? Um, Honduras, I'm not sure it's Honduras, but perhaps somewhere in Latin America. Maybe I got it. Yeah. Okay. I might have got the country wrong, but I know that he said, um, he, he'd actually talked to kind of heads of government and stuff about people becoming shareholders in the government. So you yeah. actually kind of become a shareholder of the government. Is this a kind of idea at all that you've played around with, with, um, with the free cities foundation? Is there any kind of aspect of like you own a share in the government? And if you kind of decide to leave the, you know, if you decide, decide to leave the the zone, then, you know, you, you'll, you sell your share, you sell your citizenship essentially. And, you know, therefore the government has an incentive to kind of keep afloat the actual uh, share price by doing good things because I, I always I always really like this idea that Doug Casey talked about. And I'm kind of surprised that it, it didn't you know seem to take off anywhere. Yeah, so Doug Casey actually gave a speech about this at our conference last year. Uh, that's online on our YouTube channel if people want to check that out. And the idea of being a shareholder in your government is something that we've we've are open to. It's not something we've been able to make a reality yet through any of the negotiations we've had. But basically what we advocate is that there is some sort of profit-focused structure to governance. That might sound quite strange to people who thinking about government and thinking about profit, partly because profit is almost a dirty word these days because people think about it as kind of extractive or exploitative to, to make profit. Whereas in the basic economic sense, profit is... Um, 
what happens when you're providing more value than you you take away from something and that's the situation that we want to we want to be in we want to have um governments that are providing more value to their citizens than they are taking away rather than simply imposing levies on them that they have no ability to reject if they're not happy with the service the government's providing so there are a variety of different private models that you could have you could have a more traditional private structure where there are a small group of owners a small group of private shareholders and they invest in an entity um and they seek to make make profit that way by providing services and charging a fee for them but equally you could have something more akin to a workers cooperative like uh the co-op in in the UK uh where there are multiple uh, owners of of the a very large number of distributed owners with with voting rights uh across the across the organization so either of these could could work in in principle i think there are some reasons why just from a purely entrepreneurial perspective it makes sense to have fewer decision makers and more, and then there are other reasons why it would make sense to ha- have people who are living in the city have a personal stake with it but ultimately i don't think one's necessarily better or worse i think it's a market decision basically um people the, the ultimate thing should be that people are free to move to whichever kind of entity treats them best and provides them with the best service and it may be that entrepreneurially that's delivered through a narrower governance structure it may be that there's some role for voting and mass shareholding in that process cool so you know i'm just kind of thinking because you you mentioned um hong kong a couple of times and you know you mentioned here as well like cooperatives and and how they function and singapore comes to mind as well as another place that has kind of tried you know some of the these ideas of you know very like extremely like limited government etc but i you know i guess like to kind of bring out the the skeptic in me you know even for instance the the foundation of of america you know like when we had the i say we had you know not that american or or even lived during those times but you know when the, when america was formed the united states was was formed the whole idea was that you know there was no income tax everyone was you know you you kind of owned what you had and it was all kind of free trade it was essentially the it was true kind of capitalism at least in in those in that very very initial period and then over time kind of just things trended uh, in a different direction and you know america became a democracy and it was never supposed to be a, a democracy america you know brought in income tax etc and now america essentially looks like any other government on earth in fact it's um it, it's it's got more government than uh than most nations on earth and it's more you know it's got higher taxes than a lot of places and now it's not a beacon of, of freedom anymore in in the world now what are the how how do you prevent places from kind of descending in that way because you know i mean even even with hong kong for example i mean hong kong now is being cracked down um by china and you know freedom there you know hong kong is no no longer really a place of freedom how how do you prevent that happening is that just you know you just hope that you change hearts and minds or is there something kind of in the fabric of what you're doing that's going to maintain the actual autonomous nature and the actual kind of libertarian nature of these places yeah it's a really good question and it's one of the things that we have to think very seriously about i would argue that there is always a tendency for any system to be challenged and to break down and there isn't any system in the world even the one we propose that is foolproof against 
corruption and reverting to a less optimal way of governing. The thing that I would say differentiates a free private city from a standard nation state is the incentive structure. And I would argue that the incentive structure in a free private city is more likely to provide that long-term stability and long-term prosperity that we want and stay true to a more libertarian form of governance. So just to outline what that incentive structure is, in a traditional nation state, you typically have a five-year election cycle where a political leader is in charge of the entire state apparatus for just a short period of time. And they essentially become a caretaker of a very valuable asset. And all the population really see during the five years that they are in power is the outward appearance of whatever the actions are that, that could be implemented during that time. So there's very little incentive for a leader, for example, to put in a big investment that's only going to yield results in 20 years time. Um, if we make an analogy, so imagine that there is a apartment uh, with an owner and he's got all of his credit cards and he hands them off to someone else for a year. Well, the person that's in charge of the house for a year would be more, wouldn't be incentivized really to do any long-term repairs. Maybe if there's some dry rot in the cellar, they wouldn't really be incentivized to take care of it or to repaint the walls or to fill up the air conditioner. And if they've got the credit cards, they'd probably be incentivized to spend it on having lots of events and parties. And the new neighbors would probably think, wow, this is a great person that's in charge of this property. You know, there's suddenly all this activity. There's suddenly all these things going on. But what they don't see is that three, four years down the line, this person that would otherwise have had a nice nest egg to retire with has actually maxed out all of their credit cards because they wanted to have all of these parties. And what seemed like really good times have later been shown to have been just using borrowed resources and borrowed time. And I think that the analogy of modern governments is similar to that. You have politicians that are just in charge for a short period of time that don't have an incentive to maintain the, the capital or not max out the credit cards for their population in the long term. And what the free private cities model does is seek to change that. Because in that structure, you don't have these temporary caretakers. You have shareholders that have a long-term interest in the capital value of the organization. And that's the fundamental difference that I think means that in that system, you're more likely to take prudent long-term decisions. You're more likely to create an environment that attracts more people to join, join you, where they feel that they can uh, invest for the future in a stable way. And that sort of model that I believe will be more attractive is much more alignment in alignment to a libertarian version of society. And that's why I think you're more likely to see the longevity and uh, sustainability of that system within a private governance model than in a standard nation state model. Okay, cool. So just going back on something you, you said a bit earlier, because um, I guess this, you know, ultimately when you're, when you're trying to build these, these libertarian societies, really, you know, I'm thinking about having read like Rothbard and stuff and some of the things that he talks about and especially some of the biggest challenges, essentially you're, you're trying them out. You know, you're actually experimenting with them and saying like, you know, how, how do we overcome these problems? And I think part of the problem with these places which are fully libertarian and, you know, I consider myself to be a libertarian, but I also accept that there are some serious challenges there in particular 
with regards to like the essentially the kind of um secondary uh, i'm not sure exactly like what the term will be but you know things like pollution right like pollution is something you mentioned and you said well you know if, if someone pollutes uh, if it's on your own land if it's in your own territory that's fine but if the pollution um, moves into someone else's territory, into the land they're on, then you, you know, you're responsible for the cost of that. How do you actually police that in practice? Because this is a conversation that I have a lot, like, you know, with some of my kind of like more left-leaning friends is that, you know, I'll, I'll kind of say, oh, you know, like uh, we should be living under, you know, consensual voluntary agreements and things should be private, et cetera. And they'll say, oh, well, but, you know, what if you've got a factory and you're polluting and that pollution is not going to stay within this area of land that you're in, it's going to move into other areas. Or, you know, maybe you're putting waste in a lake and maybe you own part of the lake, but you don't own the full lake. Like essentially there are these barriers which are ultimately invisible and you know nature doesn't really respect your barriers of of what you own so how do you deal with those kind of problems if you're trying to create these private orientated cities yeah it's a really good question again the simple answer is that the operator of the zone sets the policy on those on those metrics and then allows people to opt into that system and ideally exchange rights to all areas of their property, not just the land that they have in the physical, um, the physical property that they have on the land, but also things like the physical space around it. Prosper has actually got a really interesting initiative where they're developing 3D property rights around their, around new developments. So when you move into Prospera, you can choose to buy not just an apartment, but also the air outside of the apartment. And it sounds like a bit of a crazy idea, but when you think about what that means in practice, it can actually prove to be pretty interesting. So for example, you can buy the right to not have drones fly in your in, in this area of air around your apartment. You could buy the right not to have any other building built there to preserve your line of sight to the, the sea. And you can uh, also, this isn't, it hasn't been introduced yet, but there can also be things about pollution within the air that you buy around your house. Now, this is a very uh, experimental solution at this stage, but it is a potential solution to how you deal with those, those, um, those problems. Like what if certain particulates are uh, making their way into someone else's airspace? But ultimately, there would have to be a decision from the, uh, from the, dis- from the central decision maker, either to say, Above this threshold of, say, nitrous oxide, uh, you have to ask permission or buy permission to pollute over a certain level. And whatever that level is, that should be decided on a, on a business basis. Some businesses will say it's higher. Some businesses will say it's lower. Whereas with what we currently have, um, we have this system in nation states where the government will assemble a panel of experts and determine um, using you know, metrics about what those experts think is deemed safe and what is deemed unsafe. And they'll say, you cannot exceed this level of pollution in a river or in the air. But in some circumstances, it might make sense to have a bit more pollution in exchange for other benefits. For example, if someone wants to come along and build a factory and create jobs for an entire town uh, just down the road, that might result in a bit more pollution, but the townspeople might prefer that if they're going to 
all have these better paying jobs than they'd otherwise have. So what our system does is it tries to allow entrepreneurs to set their own own thresholds and then trade the rights of those thresholds so that there can be a market-driven solution rather than say, we're going to assemble a panel of experts and decide on what is basically an arbitrary level and then stop people from going above that across the entire area, regardless of circumstance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I love all of these uh, all of these ideas and I like the fact that all of these kind of intricate problems are being thought about. My 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 kind of niggling concern is that if you had, for instance, these systems and you've got a system, you know, like you're you're suggesting where we have regulations even on things like the amount of um, you know, nitrous oxide in, in the air, et cetera. And then you have to kind of judge where that boundary is, you know, in a 3D space, et cetera. My my concern is that it there might be a tipping point by which the bureaucracy of that actually becomes more than the bureaucracy of a traditional government where you do just have a bunch of people around the table essentially just saying, look, we're going to just blanket say you can't pollute this much. We're going to blanket make these decisions. You know, you almost, I, I wonder whether like all of this is possible with a certain um, availability of technology, but not before that, you know, like whereas before that it might just be bureaucratically um, not um, practical. Yeah, it's certainly plausible that a much simpler way of doing it is preferred. But the key thing is that within a free private city, the governing entity sets the rules and people can decide if they want to opt into those rules or not. And different cities can try with different thresholds and find out which ones work better in terms of attracting more people and which ones don't. Whereas right now, you've got these huge territories and standards are often internationalized. So they're the same across, for example, the entire European Union. And then you can't really compare like for like, like how much damage are these policies doing versus how much benefit they're doing, they're creating. And within our system, it's totally plausible that it could just be a simple threshold system again. But the crucial thing is it would be introduced and signed up to um, in a transparent way by any company that's coming in. And um, it wouldn't be subject to change over time unless that was specified in the contract. Like with the existing system, a company can, can move to an area and then they can find you know, a year later due to a national election that the conditions upon which they've invested be those the taxes they pay or the pollution thresholds or the employment restrictions have completely changed on them. So within our system, there is much more stability because you have a clear contract um, where the terms are set out in black and white and can't be arbitrarily changed without you know the conditions for that change being made explicit beforehand. Okay, cool, cool. And you know, with these systems that we're talking about, we're essentially talking about systems that don't operate on democracy. I know that, you know, you mentioned that there would be initially a period that you might have some kind of government governmental figure to to get things going and to kind of bootstrap the whole thing. But then at some point they kind of walk away. This isn't a de- democratic system we're talking about. We're talking about a system of opt-in, you know, everything's privately run. You come in, you 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 pay for the goods and services, et cetera. And it's, and it's voluntary, which, which I like, but, you know, and obviously, this also was essentially how Hong Kong was as well, right? It's 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 still how Hong Kong is today. It's still how um, Singapore is today. So you know, you can have very very successful, um, you know, advanced economies 
uh, without democracy. In fact, I would say there's either no relationship there or possibly even democracy is a hindrance to that. So personally, for me, I have no problem with saying, you know, democracy is is a hindrance to those things and that having a place with without democracy is okay. But I know that that's not palatable to most people. So like, I'm wondering how the average person has kind of taken on these ideas, you know, people who aren't in this circle of libertarian thinking and Austrian economics and stuff like how do they, how do they respond to these kind of ideas and these, these kind of projects? Yeah. So just the first thing to say about democracy is that I think we should kind of claim this word back or not allow this word to be uh, associated purely with the kind of majoritarian first past the post partisan system that we currently have in most Western developed countries. Democracy in its literal sense means rule by the people. And I would argue that the people are much more in control of the policies of the, uh, of the entity they're working with in a private context than they are in a public context. If I'm someone, for example, that is a huge supporter of the Green Party in the United Kingdom, which has probably single digits national national votes across the whole nation, I can keep voting every year for green policies, but my vote doesn't count for anything because I haven't swung the uh, I haven't swung the party within my individual constituency constituency to the one I want. You have this strange system in majoritarian political systems whereby people can cast a vote and the vote is weighted the same no matter what, regardless of whether someone feels really strongly about the outcome or is indifferent. The, the vote counts in the same way. And if you're, it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to sway the outcome of your individual seat one way or the other. And so I would argue that in that system, large swathes of the population are are not empowered and that's not really democratic you want people to be in control whereas when it comes to private companies if i'm someone that wants to go out for dinner and i don't like the way that restaurant staff are treating me i can simply go to a different restaurant if i don't like the clothes that i'm that being produced uh, or you know the providence of those clothes or the way the labor is treated then i can choose a different supplier I would argue that there's much more democracy in a free market context where people can exercise uh, their own decisions and base their decisions upon their own value structures than there is in this majoritarian system. So I would argue that we need to claim back this word democracy and that it applies better to uh, private property rights and free market systems than it does to um, the system we have in most modern nation states. Yeah, yeah, very well said. I I totally agree with all of that. I mean, I, I I sometimes use the word direct democracy when it comes to these things, right? Because like you know, when you're actually voting with your wallet, you're taking a direct uh, action. You know, you have complete autonomy when you go to a restaurant. Like you said, you know, you can go to this restaurant and you can say, no, I'm going to go to the other restaurant, and that's fine. Everyone else can use the first restaurant if they want to do so, but you have the actual ability because you have genuine choice, right? And you know, with governments you don't have genuine choice. What you have is, on, you have choice only if you win the majority, right? And normally you're not going to win the majority. And what happens is that nobody gets what they want because everyone's trying to kind of be essentially the second best option because everyone's ideal option is like, okay, well, that's not going to happen. So you need to just trend towards the middle. You need to just trend towards the, the kind of goo in the middle so, rather than actually yeah. saying, what do I really want, you know? And uh, yeah, I mean, you, you know, it's like in the UK, it's like, 
everyone votes either Labour or Conservative, but they hate Labour or Conservatives. Like no, nobody actually likes mm. the party that they vote for. So, um, you know, democracy, I think is, I agree, we, we've romanticized the word, you know, democracy and, you know, but I, but I think that finally now people are able to have conversations about about this kind of thing and, it, and it's got less stigma and that was going to be the le- next thing i asked you actually is like have you seen a have you seen a growth in interest in this in this kind of stuff over time because i would imagine that since uh the events of 2020 that a lot of people have kind of been turned on to these kind of kind of ideas so i'm interested to know yeah i do feel like there's a lot of momentum growing up growing around the world in various freedom oriented movements free cities is one I mentioned that the predecessor to the Free Cities Foundation was established in 2017. Back then, there were zero Free Cities projects. It was a purely theoretical notion with no physical instantiation. Now we have two projects which have got people living and working in them, um, which have had tens of millions of US dollars of investment go into them. So that in itself is already a big change. We've also seen more liberty-focused, intentional community spreading. For example, last week I was in Montenegro checking out a new project called Montelibro, which is composed uh, comprised largely of ethnic Russians who have left Russia due to the situation with the, the war there, but are libertarians and want to live in a different kind of society. There's movements like this springing up all over the place. And there are also other freedom-focused movements like the, the Bitcoin movement, for example, and that's just a hugely positive trend that we've seen um, over the last decade or so, which is also providing the tools that people need if they want to live a more free and independent life. So I think things like that moving in tandem, uh, I think it's still very early days, but it gives me optimism that the world in 20 or 30 years time is probably going to be one where there are more free jurisdictions with people acting more freely than there are you know, jurisdictions where there's a very uh, oppressive kind of political atmosphere. Yeah, I'm glad that you've mentioned Bitcoin, actually, because I, I, I do want to come around to that. But just just briefly before, um, I the, the first kind of um, project of this that I really heard about when I was uh, coming around to the ideas of libertarianism is, I think it's called Liberland or Liberland. I'm not sure, entirely sure how you're supposed to mm. pronounce it, but this is the one, in, I think it's on in the, in the border somewhere around Croatia. Um, yeah. I'm just wondering, is that, is that got anything to do with the Free Cities Foundation or is it a totally separate project? And do you know where that's up to? Because it seems to have been kind of on the radar for a long time, but doesn't seem to have really taken off in my, in my estimation. Yeah, so Lieberland is a project that's been in development for around a decade now. And it's an attempt to create a new nation state on an area of land in the Danube on the border between Serbia and Croatia. Essentially what happened is the, the Danube shifted its, its trajectory uh, due to changes in, in the, the, path, the, the flow of the river and an island was created. It's actually quite a large island. It's larger than Monaco and Liechtenstein, for example, uh, but it's an area which there was ambiguity around because previously the border between Serbia and Croatia was simply defined by the path of this river. When the river changed, the question was, does the extra bit of territory go to Serbia or to Croatia? To avoid a conflict, this area of land, which is reasonably small and currently doesn't have any industry on it, both sides decided to leave it as it is 
so as not to uh, cause an international incident with the other side. So the founder of Liberland, Vitsa Jadlika, who is um, a uh, entrepreneur of uh, originally from the Czech Republic, he discovered this and has been attempting to establish a new country on this area of land, uh, which is is recognised and trying to get international recognition for it as a as a nation state. Uh, as you mentioned, at the moment there is still issues, primarily with the Croatian uh, police. They they won't let people actually inhabit this land, even though they're not taking a firm stance on the, on the legal status. They're trying to avoid it becoming an issue by allowing people to settle. So up until now, there's been no construction on the site and the Liberland guys are focusing um, on other kinds of projects as well, uh, such as just last week, they've established a, a seastead um, off the coast of, I believe it's uh, Oman or the UAE area. And they're also doing a metaverse, Liberland metaverse project. But I think the thing that differs from between the Liberland approach and the free private cities approach is that Liberland is more trying to create a new nation state. And that's not what we focus on. We focus on working with existing nation states and establishing a private operator run model. Um, so we're not seeking for international recognition in the same way that Liberland is. We're not going to, you know, Latin American countries and saying, um, can you recognize us as a, a territory? Um, and we're not trying to inhabit um, unclaimed areas of land. We basically work with existing governments. So Liberland features in something called our free communities directory. If people want to find out about the range of free cities aligned projects, they can go to free-communities.org. And there is a page in there about Liberland as a project in preparation. And you can also find out about the other projects I've mentioned there as well. But um, but yeah, that's maybe a slight philosophical or a slight difference with us in Liberland is that we work within existing nation states. They're trying to found their own independent nation state. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to, to hear about where that's up to. Uh, there's a there's a guy here um, who's got a Liberland passport and it's 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 a super legit passport. I mean it's uh it's pretty cool. Mm. I I I hope it succeeds. So I guess we'll find out. So yeah, bringing it back to Bitcoin, you mentioned um you, you know that this is kind of a, a key like transitional point, right? Like this is something that's actually going to hopefully accelerate this. And I really think I mean I wonder whether free cities and all these kind of ideas we're talking about. I wonder whether any of it would have been possible without some kind of you know money which isn't um centralized you know central you know if you look at the basically nation states and you kind of trace back like where is all of that power coming from ultimately it's coming from the central bank you know the central bank is the thing which empowers um the whole system right like the governments are borrowing from the central bank the central bank are the printers of money they're the issuers of money they control the inflation rate etc everything is kind of you could strip everything away and if you've got a central bank you you've got a government it's impossible to have like true freedom with that so yeah i'm just wondering how how bitcoin kind of incorporates with these projects and also just like more generally what are your i know that you are like very pro bitcoin but what are your thoughts about how the bitcoin's role in you know forming kind of free private cities well, it fundamentally changes the way in which governments can raise money because, as you mentioned, one of the central mechanisms through which governments are able to, to spend and command resources is by issuing their own token 
demanding their own token in tax in ever-increasing amounts each year, uh, thereby giving value to that token and also allowing them to monitor all the uses of that token across the whole economy. I think there are a few ways that you can argue are relatively distinct in which uh, seniorage from a uh, from having your own currency gives power to a government. Um, one is that it literally gives them some money through, or gives them resources for inflation because they can pass on a portion of the cost of their spending uh, onto any holders of the currency. Uh, secondly, because the taxes are demanded in that particular currency and the state has control of the of the what would you call them of the mechanisms through which that that money flows around the economy that allows the state to monitor what everyone's what everyone's transacting in um so you know if you want to apply for a mortgage you have to provide your bank statements and the banks will see and the regulators will see what it is that you've spent your money on what the origin of your funds have been and that's much more feasible when you're in control of the money whereas if you're not in control of the money uh, you firstly can't spend new units of the money into the economy. So you have to be totally honest with your citizens about what it is that you're charging them and what it is that you're, that you're spending because there's no roundabout mechanism for just creating new coins. You have to raise exactly what it is that you, that you want to spend. And then secondly, if you're not in full control of the, currency itself, then it's much more difficult for you to monitor exactly what it is that your citizens might be might be doing. So it lessens the power of the state overall and puts more power in the hands of the individuals. And the other complication it removes is that international trade is currently incredibly convoluted. And there are huge volumes of, of money that are made by just, you know, monitoring foreign exchange fluctuations and trying to arbitrage the difference. Um, that's all value that could be kept in the real economy because you'd have just a single unit of, of currency that was used across the entire world. So there are many different benefits, I think, having a single form of hard money uh, that can be transacted easily across space that preserves its value across time uh, would bring to, to a world. And I think it's particularly important where you have lots of different entities with their own governing structure that need to cooperate. That system is just, you know, it's just not feasible to have individual currencies at that level. So I think Bitcoin provides a very elegant technological solution to, to that problem. And with the existing projects that you've got going, has Bitcoin played a part in those specifically? So Bitcoin was made an equivalent to legal tender in Prospera a bit before it was made officially legal tender in El Salvador. So in a sense, oh, wow. Prospera was the first jurisdiction in the world to make Bitcoin yeah. a kind of currency that was equivalent to legal tender. Um, the reason I'm saying using that language is that they didn't want to mandate it as a, as a, as a means of paying taxes. They don't like mandates. They like voluntarism. So if some people are not into Bitcoin, you don't want to say to a business, you have to pay your taxes in Bitcoin or you have to accept Bitcoin if that's something you don't want to do. Uh, El Salvador did decide to make that decision on paper, at least, although it's not really enforced. So I think some of the criticisms that people have of El Salvador of, you know, they're forcing Bitcoin on the population 
aren't really valid because yeah. no one's ever been arrested for not accepting a Bitcoin payment in El Salvador. Um, yeah, I still think in the not, principle, though, I still think in principle they should they yeah. should not um, they should not mandate it. I, you know, I, I I get I agree with you. They're not really enforcing it, but I still think that it shouldn't even be on paper. I would actually agree with you, um, although I make that sort of with a bit of a heavy heart because I, I think it, it is amazing what's happened in El Salvador since the introduction of uh, Bitcoin's legal tender. Um, you know, the fact that it's now being used not by by any means the majority of people all the time, but by a significant minority, it's now starting to be used. Now, I'm sure that wouldn't have happened as quickly if they hadn't introduced Bitcoin as legal tender. But in general, I am pro-volunteerism and pro-people being able to make their own choices. So perhaps there were other ways that you could have introduced those benefits without having a mandate. But yeah, this is the approach taken by Prospera. They didn't have a mandate. They said that uh, within our jurisdiction, um, Bitcoin transactions are not taxed in any special way. Bitcoin's equivalent to any other currency you want to use. So we're not going to monitor the US dollar price of your Bitcoin and work out whether you need to pay pay uh, special capital gains fees on it. It's just treated as a usual currency. And I did that, as I say, before uh, any other jurisdiction in the world. So in that sense, uh, they were leaders in introducing Bitcoin. And they've also got some exciting new activity. Um, the first time I visited Prospera was 2021, and there was not really any Bitcoin stuff there. But when I back, went back last year in November, they built a brand new Bitcoin center. And I met some of the members of staff there that are training local businesses into in how to use and accept Bitcoin. I believe they provided training to 40 businesses within uh, the Prospera area. Uh, on how to use Bitcoin. And there are big summits going on there. I think there's a fintech summit happening this month in Prospera. So there's lots of Bitcoin related activity that seems to be attracted to, to these jurisdictions. Yeah, that's great. That's really great to hear. I mean, the other thing, you know, with I, I think that Bitcoin ultimately is going to turn the world into, into uh, you know, a bunch of private cities, essentially, anyways. I just don't see how governments are going to be able to are going to be able to weather that storm that's coming essentially um you know i mean even just little things like the fact that right now governments they can kind of tell how much you're earning you know they just go to the bank and say you know we think this person isn't paying their taxes and then you know they can get a list of everything you put in the bank and it's very hard to essentially keep your money hidden from the government and especially as we're going going cashless it's going to get increasingly hard but imagine the amount of chain analysis the government is going to have to try and do if you go and pay your barber or whatever and you say, I want to pay you in Bitcoin and he spins up a Bitcoin wallet and then you pay him in Bitcoin, like how, how is the government ever going to know? I mean, it's, it's such a private technology. I know that people have their criticisms about the privacy, but you know, my kind of thesis has always been that as time goes on, it's going to become more and more private because if it's used as a transactional currency increasingly, you know, people aren't just buying on exchanges. Right now, the main reason that you get Bitcoin or the main method you get Bitcoin is you go on an exchange and you say, here's my ID, here's my here's my passport, here's my driving license. And then you buy the Bitcoin and then, you know, they report that to the government, et cetera. You know, just like a bank would, it's a financial institution. But when it's being used as a transactional currency, all that goes away. Um, you know, whether that's kind of using it on the main chain or whether it's using it on the Lightning Network, you could just spin up uh, an address and you can get paid and the government has no idea. And eventually they're going to find it, in, you know, that, 
taxing people's income is going to be pretty much impossible because you, you're going to have no idea. Someone can just report whatever income they have. The government will have no idea what it is. So I think everything's going to trend in that direction. So, you know, eventually these governments, if they're going to try to still, um, uh, you know, get income tax and things like this, well, they're going to have to spend so much money on doing chain analysis, which is going to be ultimately futile. They ju- they're just going to dig themselves into a ditch, right? Whereas if you're a free a free private city and you don't have income tax, you're not going to spend all that money. You you know, it's another com- it's just another of the competitive advantages I think you're going to face. So, uh, are, you, yeah. are you going to you know benefit from? Yeah, yeah, I agree that it's going to be increasingly difficult, and it's going to force governments to think about raising revenue in a alternative way. It is a bit weird how we currently do it. We have an incredibly complicated system of taxation where you have uh, you know, value-added tax, income tax, sales tax, land tax, um, corporation tax. There's a variety of different metrics. And what you end up getting taxed at in the end turns seems to be you know, pretty arbitrary. If you are a larger entity in any complex system, you can... You can hire experts who can navigate that system and result in you paying a very low amount of tax if you need to. So you've got, on the one hand, uh, that system that's that's going on, and you know, in in future, I think that governments are going to have to say, like, yeah, it's it's more the system is more like a rental agreement, the same that you have if you rent an apartment. You you know, the, the landlord doesn't say. Well, what's your salary? Uh, I need to take 10% of your salary. If you get promoted, I'm going to get more, more money from you. They say you're getting a specific service, which is use of this apartment for a certain period of time. There are rules associated with that. You can't play your guitar at three in the morning on full, full volume. You can't litter in the local area. You can't have a barbecue on your balcony. There are certain rules. These are written in black and white, but this is the fixed cost. And I think governments are going to have to operate in that way a bit more, which I think will make a lot more sense, especially with all the controversy that there is around immigration. You know, some people say we should have a much more open immigration policy. Some people say less. But if you had a system where the government was in control of the fees that they charge and there was a simple process that said, you know, if you want to move to this place, this is the basic fee. And then as long as you obey the rules, you're you're not going to get any necessarily any special help from the rest of the population in terms of subsidies or you know handouts or any kind but you are free to operate here and provide services and be part of the community then i'm sure there will be much a much more harmonious relationship in uh, in in countries because people everyone would be contributing to a certain extent and also there would be clear rules that people would either sign into uh, or, or sign up to or not uh, when they were making a decision about moving to a country yeah, yeah, I love that. You know, I really hope that I really hope we can move into that direction. I mean, I have my doubts with just the the kind of general mentality. I think is so is still even though we're kind of you know somewhat in our bubble of like libertarian thinking and thinking from first principles, etc. I still think there's a lot of people out there who you know they think that really progressive taxation and things is a good thing, and you know they think that if you earn more money that you should you know, you're inherently more evil and you should, you should necessarily pay more, et cetera. I think it's going to be, it's definitely going to be a um, process of winning hearts and minds, I think, but I think that we're starting to get there. I do think that these conversations have become a little less uh, controversial 
recently. I think that there's been a, a slight revival, even though it's, it's only starting on an uptick. But I do think that over time, mm. um, these ideas are going to gain momentum and, and hopefully then people will be, you know, will, will understand more like, you know, it's, it's what, what it's about. You know, it's not about just kind of being being some kind of capitalist shark and saying no, no everything's money money driven no it's not about that it's about saying you know what do you contribute what's voluntary what's consensual and operating your society based upon those those, those principles you know starting there yeah absolutely. so i just wanted to you know I, I guess we we should probably start closing up because uh you know i know we have time restrictions i do feel like i could i could kind of go on this this topic forever it's, it's like really really interesting to me so you know i appreciate you kind of uh spending the time to go into these ideas so I just wanted to, to first of all, ask you, like, what are your thoughts, you know, generally on, on the state of the world? You know, I mean, I started this, this podcast off the back of everything that happened in 2020, saw kind of the world right. going very much in a tyrannical direction. And I know a lot of my audience has kind of gone through that process as well of kind of being red pill, red pill from that and recognizing the world kind of wasn't really as, as it seemed. And, you know, we have tyranny kind of on the horizon and we have to kind of be very very much on our on our toes because there's forces out there that want to move things in a different direction i'm wondering what what you think about that are you are you i guess like optimistic or pessimistic and what are your thoughts about everything that happened in 2020 and things that have happened since then i would say broadly speaking i'm optimistic because I don't think that bad economic ideas work in the long term. They don't empower the actors that implement them in the long term. And we live in a world where, although power is pretty centralized in certain institutions, you know, the US is still an incredibly important country. People, people look often at the GDP and say, oh, the US has got the biggest GDP, so it's the most powerful country. But when China has its GDP, a bit bigger, it's going to become the most powerful. In fact, like so many institutions are based in the US at the moment that I think that it's the staying power of the international system being based on the US is going to last quite a lot longer. You know, the US dollar is a great example of that, where it's controlled by, it's it's still the currency that's used for 75% of all uh, foreign exchange transactions in the world. It still yeah. provides the payment rails for virtually all international trade. And so there are these centralizing systems, but I think the trends are showing that they're becoming weaker over time and that there are more and more jurisdictions that are starting to do things differently. And I think that's bound to continue because when jurisdictions discover that they can introduce policies similar to Hong Kong and Singapore, they'll just start to outcompete their neighbors and the neighbors will be forced to change their ideas. Now, that doesn't mean that it's going to be a linear path. And I do think there's going to be big challenges for people that value freedom. The, I was also, you know, dismayed by what happened in the, in 2020 with the national lockdowns. Uh, you know, this was a huge restriction on people's, on people's freedom and we seem to allow as a society, the state to take on uh, a much more authoritarian role in people's lives than I think we would have expected. So that we've now been through that and seen what it's like, but, and some people, for some people that was an appropriate way to have dealt with the situation. 
But for others, there were a lot of new freedom-focused movements that were catalyzed. You mentioned your own podcast starting during that time. Um, it was during that time that I came to the Free Cities Foundation. And uh, I've met a lot of people that also were really uh, taken aback by what happened with, with, with the lockdowns. And it catalyzed them to, um, to, to move to, towards a, a freer system. So there are certainly challenges. And we mentioned Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin is going to be something that there's a lot of opposition to once people realize that it's a direct competitor to national currencies. And the people that are invested in the national currency system have got a lot to lose. So I think that there will be a campaign against that. And it's the same with, you know, autonomous jurisdictions. I think that when people realize that they're being outcompeted by freer systems, there will be opposition. But overall, I don't think you can fight economic reality. I, economic reality will move you towards a system that is that is freer over time. It's just a question of really how long that whole process will take. Yeah, totally agree with that. Yeah, yeah, I, d- I definitely think that um, in the end, economic reality always wins. And you know, now with Bitcoin and everything, we have a new economic reality. And you know, I'm super excited to see kind of the direction the world goes into. Um, so yeah, just before we just before we close off, I just want to say to my listeners, um, you know, please consider supporting me. If you've got value from this conversation, uh, check the links in the description. You can uh, give a donation either on um, buy me a coffee. You can also give a Bitcoin donation, and there's a Lightning address there as well, so you can give me a Lightning uh, donation. So please consider doing that if you've got value from this from this conversation. All of your your support is appreciated, and it does help to support the cost of running the show as well. Um, so yeah, Peter, just one kind of uh, final final question for you then is like, is there anything that you would like to leave my listening audience with? Is there, you know, kind of any like final parting words that you want to give and also just where people can find you and, you know, any kind of things that you've got coming up. I know that you've got the, um, this conference coming up as well. So if you want to just kind of, uh, you know, share that with my audience as well. Yeah, sure. So I would invite any members of your audience that are interested in, in this idea to join the free cities movement. Um, the ways you can do that is by becoming an active part of our community. We've got a community on, on Telegram. We've got a newsletter. Um, we run an annual conference, uh, in, and the next one's coming up in October. That is the place where if you're interested in finding out what free cities aligned projects there are available across the world. So you might want to find out what's happening in Europe, what's happening in Africa, what's happening in North America, then once a year, everyone comes together in Prague and they will showcase what they're doing and what opportunities there can be. So if you're someone that's thinking, okay, I might go and visit a free city just for a week to see what it's like, to see whether this is uh, you know, a cool place to hang out. Or if you're someone that's seriously thinking, look, I'm not too happy with the way my country is going now. I really want to consider you know, finding a second home or entirely relocating to a new place. Then I'd recommend coming along because this is the best place to hear from the horse's mouth what opportunities are available. So uh, we're going to create a discount code if people want to come to the conference, which is staying free pod, all lowercase. And so, yeah, if people want to come along, um, it'd be great to see them see them in Prague at that event. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on social media. Uh, we can give you the links to those uh, so people can do that. Uh, yeah, so that's, um, that's a 10% discount. Is it, Peter? That's right, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, yeah, I appreciate you, um, you know, doing that, 
that discount code for my for my listeners as well so um yeah and just thanks again for coming on the podcast it's been like you know really really awesome like super interesting i'm glad we finally got the opportunity to do it i hope that we'll uh you know speak again uh, in the future but yeah I'm, I'm excited about the these these ideas you've been sharing and about um the the movement towards free private cities so yeah looking forward to seeing where all this goes so yeah thanks again peter yeah thanks again for having me on johnny it's been a great chat